But the Academy right now is trying to keep up with. Yeah, because it's for example, like Black Twitter. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Why can't this is America? It's why can't lemonade? (laughs) Why can't all of these? Like, if you every rule should actually have a critical lens because so many of these rules are actually chains and bars and locks on on our progress. The problem is holding to whiteness. Like to me, the thing that's hard to say, and I'm gonna say it right now. Do it. (laughs) And it might mean that no one ever listens to this podcast. (laughs) recording hello hello hi and welcome to people have color this is a a new podcast and i am your host corinne mills and my guest today is rachel stein rachel do you want to introduce yourself sure i'm a woman (laughs) i am 36 years old I finished my PhD in Latin American and Iberian cultures last Mm -hmm. year. I'm finishing out a year of teaching Spanish at Columbia. And I'm about to move to New Orleans in a month Mm -hmm. where I'm going to become a research and instruction librarian at the Latin American Library at Tulane University. So that's going to be a totally different career. Yeah. I mean, adjacent and related, but new career as a librarian. Okay. And yeah, I'm married. I have a baby, two years old. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks for Thank sharing you. your age. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Like, who are you? Who are Where you? do yeah. you start? I was just thinking, well, the idea is to ask my guests to introduce themselves to frame their own identity for the mm-hmm. audience, because the idea of the show is to talk about identity in new ways. Um, So I don't want to make any Mm. assumptions around the way people identify. Yeah, I don't want to make any assumptions about about how you see yourself. And I think that's part of it is to help people stop making those assumptions. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember because we're doing the Evite for a going away party and then I was looking at our prior evites and the Mm -hmm. last one was my daughter's one year birthday party which was also folded into my dissertation completion graduation party and it said the title was Joni's one and mom's dissertation is done and one (laughs) of my one of my friends from school wrote me and said that's so weird that you called yourself mom in the third person (laughs) And that's when you ask to identify, identify. that's just become such a central yeah, new it, label of my identity. It, it only took a year to start referring to yourself in the third person as mom. Probably yeah. took less than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah. same, same here. Four yeah. years in over here. So yeah. I'm Corinne. I'll introduce myself again. I'm the host, Corinne Mills. And I currently identify as a hustler. I'm working for newly working for myself as part of living my best life and it's a struggle as a mom to be hustling for work 
to be newly embarking on a different stage, a different frame for your career, self-defined, self-activated, propelling myself. (laughs) That's part of what this podcast is, part of living my best life. Mm -hmm. And I also identify as a black woman, a mom and a wife, uh, American, and the youngest of two children. Mm. yeah I guess I would add that as being an identical twin is a big part mm. of my identity it's interesting it's about to become a much bigger part of my identity again yeah because we're going to be living in the same place whereas here oh, yeah. it's been like since she's been gone for the past yeah. six years it just hasn't been as much wow, of a thing six years yeah I think it's been wow. six years even though people still stop me and are like literally on saturday at at the brooklyn museum a woman said hi i know you're not laura but i know your sister (laughs) and i also spotted you at the botanic gardens earlier today well i guess you guys have been twins longer than you've been apart for six years yeah yeah for sure but that'll be an interesting new not new but but an additional additional thing being together yeah yeah as adults yeah yeah because your lives have really um, grown and developed apart in these last six years yeah definitely yeah i also always wear glasses now so mm. i think that all <laughs> that's a somehow that happened i don't know my <laughs> eyes just stopped wanting to wear contacts oh my gosh mine too i was looking to put one of these sticky tattoos on my son the kind that you know like a, uh-huh. a race car tattoo and, with water and i have not I'm not super well practiced in it. So I had to look at the directions <laughs> and I swear I pulled out a magnifying glass to read these directions. <laughs> I felt uh, ridiculous. I, I felt absurd. Ho- I've had horrible eyesight since second grade, but since pregnancy, hmm. my eyes got really dry Wow, and it never got better. It got dry. Dry. That's wow. why. Yeah. Like from strain. I have no idea. Huh. And with the glasses, keep I your also, eyes moist? Well, no, but the contacts feel like it's like sand scratching on oh. my eyes, so I just have to wear glasses. And another huh. thing I found very interesting, since we are both women and identify mm-hmm. as, well, I said I identify as such anyway. Yeah, I, I, no, I did too. I yeah, said, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, I that. know you do, but I didn't know if that was like a central thing. But the eye doctor said most or many women experience chronic dry eyes mm-hmm. and they just don't know why huh and that's just one of those many things about being a woman it's like of (laughs) course diseases yeah and like the ailments that afflict women are not well studied (laughs) whereas maybe if men were the ones who had chronic dry eye magical mystical mystical condition of being a woman (laughs) who knows what it's all about Okay, so today, on today's episode, you and I, Rachel, we've talked about a a couple of things that are on our minds. I wanted to just um, ask you what's on your mind, and I'll just say what's on mine first, and then I'll ask you to chime in about what's on yours. So today, really, what's going on is the Donald Glover video. Yes. This is America. It's what's going on for America right now, and American pop culture, my Twitter. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) And, you know, I just thought there's not enough being said, so we should say more. (laughs) 
Um, We're going to have so much to add. Yeah. It's not that there's not enough being said. It's just that it's going on. So it's on my mind. And I have do have a couple of things I'd like to mention about it. Also, my phone addiction, which is related to my consumption of the Donald Glover video and opinions about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And feeling stuck in my bubble around everything that's consuming my brain. I mean, this hustler lifestyle of mine of making my own work does keep me isolated to an extent, which brings me to um, the the content that you shared with me that was on your mind. And I want to mm-hmm. ask you, you know, what your thoughts about it were, because you sent me some stuff to think about to talk today. And I consumed both of those things. Okay. I read the James Baldwin article last night and I listened to the Code Switch episode today, both mm-hmm. of which were about navigating um, a Jewish identity in the context of, you know, American civil rights and American identity. And like just the sense of like Jews as a marginalized group. Right. And what does that mean today? And what are just some ideas around that? So why did that come up for you? Mm-hmm. Does it relate to anything current? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been I, I've told you before, I consume a lot of podcasts because mm-hmm. I have a long commute. I do need several days a week. And so, again. OK, so and I'm especially been really into podcasts that have to do with race mm. okay so me too so it's not yeah. just me well you're confirming my bubble to an extent because <laughs> you're in it with me you're in my facebook yeah. world but I, I think part of and this related to something i want to talk to you about about twitter and when to speak on twitter and what to say mm-hmm. especially as a as a white woman um who only identifies as white because i i know that i belong to that socially constructed category Mm -hmm. yet I don't think that whiteness is something that actually there's nothing cultural that I feel (laughs) identified with that I don't know what it means can we really get into it because I have so many thoughts about that but that's yeah that's in a nutshell that sort of meandering way of describing it is how I feel about it it is this vague thing because it's constructed what is it the more you try to pinpoint it the more elusive it is i mean it seems like it has to do with power and acknowledging that you have that as a white person i have yeah power and privilege um but there isn't anything like music wise or like what the things that we normally identify as cultural yeah there I don't know what that means for there to be a white culture unless it's like country music maybe <laughs> or <laughs> I don't think I don't know why like know. maybe people will get that but Beyonce's Lemonade album showed me you know reminded me that there are black Texans mm-hmm. um, not that Texas owns country music but right Right. You know, even that yeah. falls apart upon scrutiny. Totally. Um, it's There's a majority yeah. to it. There is a cultural thing. So so let me just say my point of view about it is that, okay. if I can, is that everything is cultural. Culture is what exists. Race mm-hmm. is a construct we put on culture. Yes. And, and on a system of power. It's a way that we organize power to be a trick. <laughs> that's what I see race as otherwise all we have are cultures and culture is real but it's hard to delineate in, in clear sharp lines the way that we try to delineate race because we share so much culture across right. race 
Yeah, I was talking to my sister about this the other day because she founded a dance studio that's largely they offer hip hop. She and I have both taught hip hop dance in the mm-hmm. past and we've we're thinking about like why why were we drawn to this art form mm-hmm. that's not supposedly not ours mm-hmm. and we we could very you know rightly I guess be accused of cultural appropriation as being white people who took on just said okay I can teach that yeah I love that I I wanted I I want I connect with this with me and I can't I just I don't I can't get out of the commercial matrix that I live in we grew up well that's the culture mix a lot fifth grade I memorized every word (laughs) to baby got back yeah all of those things, like that, and, that consumer culture defined me growing up, and that was where I started loving R and B and hip hop. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, ugh, is it authentic? Saying. Is it okay? Right. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is, because who is anyone to tell you you're wrong for living the life that you've led and enjoying and consuming the art that you have, and it having had whatever effect it's had on you? The things that feel wrong are abuses of power yeah and that is caught up and tangled up mm-hmm. in the way that we consume and experience culture because of these real tangible things about around like struggle around people making a life for themselves that's right. the cost that's those are the consequences and the stakes of an abuse of power is the the struggle that it requires and the and the threat to people's safety and security. Mm-hmm. But those are conflated with like this lived experience of disempowerment of seeing yourself like, you know, I'm talking a little yeah. bit vague and heady, but I- I'm consumed right now with this experience and this dialogue that I'm seeing on social media around like appropriation and this real anger uh, from people of color black people that you see uh, around feeling like things get taken from things get taken from us all the time and that to me is an expression of disempowerment of you know there was this thing on Facebook the other day around Vogue highlighting like long nails or something like nail art and feeling like that was appropriating and it's it is, but only because only in the sense that Vogue is more powerful than you. And right. there are ways right. that it is, but it's not all powerful. Right. It, it gets power from us. And just the engaging in a discussion that says you are more powerful than me and I resent you is propping up the, its power. It's inauthentic power, the inauthentic power that it holds over you. That's unfair. And I'm not saying like the people who are angry are at fault for that. I'm just saying like that's that's the paradigm shift is that the discussion, the way you think about it, things we believe around power are the problem and also changeable. That's the, that's the trick of it is that we believe these things, these stories, the rhetoric and the beliefs are as huge a piece of it as the police officer's foot on your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the question I do have had a sense in the lot in recent years since like Black Lives Matter, since all of us, or at least in our bubble, many of us have been thinking more about it, or I should just speak for myself, I've been thinking more about it. Mm -hmm. 
like has has caused a hyper awareness of race and issues of race that I didn't have before, which is so important. But it also feels, to use a super academic term, like reifying mm-hmm. in a way what you're like yeah. what you're saying, like by repeating this discourse. Yeah. Both the dominant discourse and the resistance discourse. Yes. They're almost like two sides like, of the same. Yeah. Point. And so what's but what's the next step? It's yes. ob- that's the it's actually questioning. It's I was wa- watching a TED talk in preparation for some work this week. And this woman was saying she was a conflict expert, specialist in conflict, has a master's degree in conflict resolution, and said one of the major keys to conflict resolution is to promote curiosity, to preserve and practice curiosity. That's the key to openness, to an open-minded approach, to taking in new information. With how to move past. Yeah, to me, it just opened up. It's not about, you know, one person having the answer. It's about breaking up our assumptions, questioning your assumptions, naming assumptions, naming assumptions as a condition of our oppression is that we assume things like, I'm sorry, I'm trying, I want to keep this thing short, but I have so many. No, I don't need to keep it short. (laughs) I have so many thoughts (laughs) about that are bubbling in my head around. I also recently watched a documentary about lions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't stop thinking about it because it was so brutal. Like lions are so beautiful and they're so powerful and they're these free animals Mm -hmm. that you want like to preserve their freedom where they really do exist in the safari, not in the zoo. Right. But they are brutal. They don't have justice. Mm. And I just, my brain was just firing on all these analogies between lions and humans just as beasts. Mm -hmm. Like the, the men, the men, not the men they're they're lions the male lions Mm -hmm. are are really brutal they're like they're they're more dangerous than the females and the children obviously Uh, they will hurt and maybe kill the, the the mom for interfering too much with their food which the mom most likely caught for them tracked down the moms do the majority of the hunting oh my goodness uh and they won't th- as easily hurt their own children. So the moms send their kids in to get the food. And I just, as a mom, oh my God. <laughs> I just had a lot of thoughts about that. And but also, I'm sorry, can I just jump no, in with ahead, that? Because jump in. that makes me think also that so much of like what masculinity means mm-hmm. in our society is propped up on his like centuries of scientific examination yes. of animal behaviors yes. and justifying human yes. behaviors on, on perceived like, animal behaviors. Yes. So it's like, oh, like whatever's natural or not natural, people mm-hmm. have historically looked to animals to yes. determine. Well, that's what I'm doing presently, actually, is looking to animals. Right, but that's, no, but I mean, on the one hand, it's like you see the parallels, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, that I'm then it makes me think, well, is that innate to humans as beasts well, too? You know or is it that humans have used those kinds of observations as, as a justification to act? Yeah. yeah, for our own shortcomings right, um, and inabilities to evolve uh, socially. Uh, that's that's a that's interesting. It feels cynical 
but I'm here for it as well. I'm here to, to listen to that. My thinking about it right now is that that's why we're so hung up. That's why it is hard to evolve is because we are also animals. The thing that separates us from lions is our ability to evolve socially, is our ability to create new systems and structures and to carry information in ways that animals can't. We have history. Animals have the the yearly cycle, basically, and that's it. And that's what I learned from my own master's studies in media is this great like demarcation between man and beast when literacy started to take hold in, in human societies, when people started to do markings and to start to create symbols rather mm-hmm. than just physical reality. And literacy is the great break in right. man from beast. In my understanding and interpretation. Representation. Yeah, I'm sure there's like tons of academics. Like I'm a I'm a pseudo intellectual in this way <laughs> where I have deep thoughts, but also deep suspicions around in any institution as a historically marginalized, oppressed identity as a black American. I just distrust the academy and all um really like formalized Western institutions, European institutions, because they were not made with with my identity in mind. I think what's really interesting about the current moment, too, is that for me, the most interesting and groundbreaking and boundary pushing intellectual work is being done outside the academy. And I'm saying this coming from someone who's just been at Columbia for yeah. like eight years. You well, know? it's the thing that people and do is to seek higher learning and it's gotten more and more sophisticated over the years and centuries because people it's a human need is to, to seek higher learning. But the academy right now is trying to keep up with... Yeah, because it's For the example, academy, like Black Twitter. Yes, because the academy is actually a, a fully open-ended thing. It is what the people in it make it. But it's also... Yeah, but the people who are in it are... Yes, it's also <laughs> steeped in the tradition of hierarchy, of, of white supremacy. Of, of course. Of yeah. of patriarchy and, and white supremacy. as And those institutions have their own very strict and specific culture that we never name. It's men, oh, it's yeah. white men, it's suits, it's a certain diction, it's a certain cadence, it's a certain tone of voice and a, and a sound to your ear and a look to your face that allows you to discredit other things as as not serious it's not you know important not to be taken seriously not to be listened to to the same the, the, for example just for example and we all conform to those things and and use those things as like standard measures i want to bring this back in connection to donald glover yeah <laughs> because the first thing i thought my when I watched that video, mm-hmm. this is America video, was this is why the humanities matter. Yeah, this is why the the discipline, why yes. these disciplines matter, and why art matters. And actually, the truth of it is that it has always been forged by by a more diverse, full right. humanity than it's, it's represented by. And Columbia and all these institutions, the humanities are under attack, yada, 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 all yeah. this stuff about the human, and it's true, they are under attack. Yeah. But why are you holding on to, it has to be Greek tragedies. That's why it's that under are attack. The cor- <laughs> yeah. Why can't, this is America. It's rigid. Why can't Lemonade, 
why can't all of these, like <laughs> if you if you make students understand that that's human expression and the study of human expression is the humanities yeah then to me the discipline has relevance it is relevant it and it has to you know it will continue to evolve whether yeah. you know columbia university keeps up with it is its own thing right. but it will continue because people will continue to be smarter and smarter <laughs> yeah well uh, you know, and theoretically go up against institutions like and you were against saying, I mean that's what the real but yeah but like I, I mean I talk to people all the time who in shorthand just say burn it down <laughs> like that's that's the next step is burn it down so in what ways are we burning it down when you think about that it's just about like questioning everything that everything that you assume everything that every rule should actually have a critical lens because so many of these rules are actually chains and bars and locks on on, <laughs> on our progress yeah I, I don't know where i'm going with that but but that's what <laughs> but to me that's what the humanities need to do and yeah. that's what i've been thinking about too i mean the only thing i guess i'll say about the donald glover thing i think i can keep it short is the donald glover video is everybody there was so many articles written about it overnight and so many analyses to wade through and and it felt overwhelming and exhausting to me as a consumer of these ideas as someone who's really interested in these kinds of ideas and also the, I think the exhaustion was a, a, around like just really wanting to do this podcast <laughs> wanting to <laughs> actually like speak in my own words and also just just so tired of the structure of a final answer the main like paradigm that that needs to shift of binary thinking mm -hmm. of right and wrong there's a right answer to actually what this video means mm -hmm. there's a single answer this definitely means this this symbol definitely means this and the thing that is fascinating to me about media and that really engaged me when I pursued my master's is that media content is a two-way street. There's the person who creates it and then there's the audience that consumes it and the audience adds at least as much to, to what the thing means mm -hmm. as, the, as the creator does. The meaning happens after it's created. Yep. The final story of it happens after it's created once it's consumed so it, this video like i've just heard so many like the people trying to hate on it just to have a different take <laughs> and because people are also exhausted by being kept in these like yes and no boxes mm -hmm. there is a spectrum to everything it, it doesn't none, none of these analyses like are the final word they exist because what was supposed to happen happened something v pr hugely provocative mm -hmm. hit and it and it ha like all of the events around it mattered the fact that it was donald glover who was doing this groundbreaking show on cable uh and and occupies this space as an artist that you take seriously in a certain way in the culture so people took his video seriously or the people who were already following him took it seriously enough to spread it through their own word of mouth in a way that it like caught virally the people who write these kinds of articles mm -hmm. are the audience for this kind of video so that's 
also another sort of um, tailwind that this thing had to, p- to propel it forward into the zeitgeist. And everybody having a reaction or feeling like they have to have a say about it means that it's successful, regardless of what the takeaway is. And we are make the meaning. It does matter what the meaning is, but like the power of making that meaning is, is with us. It's not. It's not with having the right answer about what Donald Glover meant. Totally, I I agree with that hundred yeah. percent. I also. I mean, I one thing that I saw one Twitter like critique that I saw was like, I'm exhausted of, with all these this discussion of black male genius mm-hmm. with the Kanye versus that's an interest very interesting discussion sparked by this yeah moment yes I love I'm here for that discussion yeah I don't know I mean I thought that the Beachella event mm-hmm. got a lot of attention it did too but I don't know if it was that I think I think it was, who was it it was Brittany Luce she has a podcast that I listen to the nod Oh, I love that podcast. Yeah. I did not know her name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was the one who made that comment. Yeah. And, I, and then I was like, huh, was Beyonce being referred to as a genius? Because she, her point was like that word genius. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think they use that word for Beyonce. I think they, I mean, maybe, but I didn't, that, that wasn't my takeaway from Beachella. It's just that like she's excellent is what I hear about Beyonce is the takeaway I get from her. She is excellent, high performing. Uh, but I don't think people give her like yeah. genius credit at all. No, <laughs> I, have, I have way more to say about that actually. As a con- as a as a new convert to the Church of Beyonce, yes, uh, a reluctant convert to the Church of Beyonce. That's a whole other episode. I'm Beyonce and genius <laughs> is Beyonce a genius on the next People Have Color. <laughs> Because watching that HBO documentary made me no, really that was, it was hard. Yeah, that was well before I was converted. Yeah, that was that made me feel it makes me validated feel and not following, not being a, a convert, <laughs> not being in the beehive. That damn HBO documentary. I just the other thing I was thinking about the Donald Glover video is what could a white artist do? that would be so provocative stirring. or stirring woke what <laughs> not even woke like what could they do that would be so what do white people have to say about, <laughs> oh, about society or about society, their own experience their own point of view about i just society. was i just was thinking about i it, mean like, eminem to... did it like do you remember eminem put out a a, a song about trump it really didn't hit I did not see that. It was months ago, and it was really good. I mean, Eminem's a Mm. super talented MC. Yeah. I'm sure people feel different ways about it, but I thought it was brilliant writing. And I bet you a lot of people heard about it. Like, my take on Eminem actually is that everything he does is huge. I just don't follow it. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But it makes me think about something you and I talked about, like, months ago with the I am not your Negro documentary mm-hmm. and the one quote. And I would love to talk about this Baldwin essay, which was so amazing. I yeah. pulled several quotes from it. <laughs> yeah. But, but okay. keep going. When he said, when Baldwin says the race, so I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote. The race problem is not a black problem. It's an American problem. Yes. And like, 
I don't think that's the paradigm shift. Like that's a shake yes. up in the way we talk about I, it. I don't think that white people see how it's a problem for us. Themselves. I will group myself, yeah. you know, and, and I think the we problem have, is the problem is holding to whiteness. Like to me, the thing that's hard to say, and I'm going to say it right now, do it. <laughs> and it might mean that no one ever listens to this podcast <laughs> is that what has like what, what has to happen is to let go of the white identity. The mm. I, whiteness yes. as an identity is strictly to me the core meaning of a white identity is the oppression of others because mm. almost no one on earth can can identify as white and acknowledging that staying on top equals may it's, equal the oppression yeah, of others the, because like I don't think- very core to that identity is is the is the idea of hierarchy yeah and and disempowerment of others of 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 conserving power. Because even white people, the the patriarchy, the man, <laughs> the Illuminati, <laughs> oppress other white people. The, the, the breakthrough I had in thinking about this about a year ago, I was after watching 13th. This is what I got from 13th. Mm. Uh, and I wish I could remember the quote that sparked it. But my main takeaway from that is that the, the trick of this whole system is to preserve power and resources for the few. They don't actually have to be white. They just have to be few so that so that the the resources and the power can grow exponentially like without bounds. You cannot have a system like that where like with excesses like that if people are equal. The idea is not that it's not race pride. It's not like these people who have everything if you believe in a conspiracy which i don't actually a conspiracy at the top i just think it's this thing that happens based on these structures that we've all built over time Mm -hmm. it's not race pride that keeps you know the one percent dwindling to the point five percent to the point oh one percent it's this beast like brutal patriarchal dominance that's about exclusion that's a thing that people do like when we don't evolve socially which is to continue to exclude Mm. like every person on earth we're constantly talking about a human needs to be free everyone always resists their oppression and we don't you know we people talk about slaves don't get credit for how much they resisted every day and oppressed people don't get credit for the ways that they just always resist their oppression native americans refuse to be slaves that kind of thing but that's true people always do resist their their oppression because people do yearn to be free because beasts are free uh, to to bring it back to lions but beasts don't have justice that's the other thing that Mm. fucks us up is that we want to be free but we interpret freedom as as including fairness Mm -hmm. and this like yearn to not just to be free, but to be realized, to be fulfilled, to be seen, to, you know, have enough. Like these are like higher things as far as I understand them. They're not they're not our nature. They're our they're our evolution. And that's why it's a struggle. In a nutshell. <laughs> I think. It's just so many things to it's so many things. Think about. Because with the the problem is so many white people yeah. including white liberals yeah don't see themselves as clinging to 
a white, a identity. white identity of that's oppression. That's the trick of it is that we all believe that right. this whiteness exists. That's the trick of it. Like the 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 already metaphor for it is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was from the usual suspects. The greatest <laughs> trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he exists. Whiteness actually doesn't exist, right? But we all believe in it. Believe that this this there's this real thing to a, a human identity when really you know what is whiteness is it a culture is it a race it's a race right what does that mean to be white be- when it ex- excludes 90 percent of humans there are no <laughs> lines around that it's just a, a system of exclusion but how do you how can Whiteness is its own How bubble. can white people feel attacked by the system in the way that non-white people do? That to me is the, like, how how can mm. it, how can white people be brought into consciousness yeah. of the nefarious effects on them? On them. Be, I maybe, don't know. I, do you I, know what I mean? Yeah, That's because I, I see it as like, oh, those poor everyone else. Yeah. But that's why race you know what it was that clicked for me in that Baldwin documentary though is like all those images and this was the filmmaker of yes. like the 50s commercials yeah. is that you know it's the myth of America which is what Baldwin writes actually very clearly and, and regularly about it's a myth and people are actually everyone white or otherwise are living desperate lives of struggle and the thing that people who identify as white cling to, and you tell me if this is wrong because I, I don't identify as white, is that <laughs> <laughs> is that there's the possibility mm-hmm. of this peaceful life without struggle mm. that like ideal whiteness has achieved, and it doesn't actually exist. You know, pe- yeah. there is happiness. Yeah. We all can buy a new car. We can't all but buy a also new car, but also the lots of people can buy a new car and feel like they're getting a little bit happier right. or more secure or settled. But it doesn't re- replace. I mean, it, it doesn't eliminate the threat of you know sudden death, <laughs> which every human faces. Right. But I think, and I think it might be the failure to achieve that myth. Yes. That causes. A lot of mental illness. Yes, we, in white in white communities causes a lot. Like, like that's what angst is. That's mm. what existential angst is about. Is about pretend, reckoning with reality versus pretend. And like whiteness is is so much about pretending something that doesn't exist exists. Because I I do I think about those images from the documentary a lot too, and thinking yeah. about that's why white people who aren't doing well, who aren't well off mm-hmm. financially are so angry. Which is most Americans. By yeah. Like, of no, course. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's my New York bubble as well, but <laughs> most New Yorkers are struggling as well. They're, yeah. This is the richest city in the world with like the wealthiest people in the world. But that's a very far from the majority of people in this town who are struggling to make it work and, and to, and to achieve some this myth of ideal living that's unattainable mm-hmm. like if we could we we're so uncomfortable with reality if like is there a way to get comfortable with living a real life that would that would disempower the patriarchy but we're so individualistic 
Yeah. And everyone's out for themselves in such a way that it just seems like it'll never. People are not willing to give up the little what they have. Yeah. You know, like, well, and that is so related to the school issue. Yeah. (laughs) The whole thing. Yeah. But that is so related to, like, Mm -hmm. the public school issue. Yep. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like that is like the main is like, like the trickle down is of all this. White people trying to keep schools segregated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because and because we know in our gut beastly selves that there is a difference in the quality when the schools are segregated. Of course. Period. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I'm And been, we believe it. We believe that if we integrate the schools that you're doing worse for the white students and better for the black students. Exactly. That's a belief. That's, that's, a, that's a social, yeah. cultural belief that comes from I mean, so Tulane has an agreement with race. a... <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I was, missed the add-on. That. That's, that comes from generations of of living under the construct of race yes and that in this way i feel very white Mm -hmm. in this arena for Mm -hmm. example if we're defining race as we have been and acknowledging it for what it is like so talking about schools and pre-k and all that stuff so my job at tulane comes with a perk Mm -hmm. which is tulane has an agreement with a magnet school it's a public school Mm -hmm. in new orleans that apparently is quite racially diverse. Hmm. I don't know how economically diverse it is. And 50% of their kindergarten class is reserved for students of Tulane employees, hmm. children of Tulane employees. Hmm. And so, of course, the instinct is like, oh, that's such an amazing perk. We need to jump on that for our daughter. Mm-hmm. We need to get her into that school. Yep. Of course, my parents, who... <laughs> I mean, my parents who you know they I'm raised not me make in any an, assumptions about your parents. They raised me. I was raised in a very much upper middle class suburb of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Went to great public schools that were like very well financed by the tax dollars mm-hmm. of the very wealthy community that I lived in. And for them, it's like, of course you would send. Yeah, you better send our granddaughter yeah. to the best to the best to the best option. possible yes. school. But then I like Matt is going to be sorry, maybe I shouldn't say his name. My husband (laughs) is going to be teaching. Is going to be teaching at not the best school. Yeah. And like, why should we are invested in like we are philosophically and morally invested in improving the education system? I'm with you. I am not white, and I share this. Like, I read something on Facebook a year or two ago. All of our information comes from Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Just this really hardcore, like, you're you're right. You're right to feel guilty about abandoning your public school. Don't abandon your public schools. Like, we we need, everybody should be in the public schools. And it was compelling to me. This person was saying, I'm an activist. I can't call myself an activist if I'm sending my kid to private school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was compelling to me, except not enough to sacrifice my kid. Well, that's the thing. Have you been reading Nicole Hannah-Jones's? No. Um... She wrote a bunch of pieces for the New York Times about this. Yeah. She's like, she's like my Bible for this. Like I've been reading. So she did those This American Life episodes uh-huh. that are all about segregation, uh-huh. like school segregation. I and just, 
I'm feeling overwhelmed by just <laughs> learning about con- current day segregation. I know I I I know I it through osmosis, not through like actually reading about it. Or getting she it, breaks it down like I. There was an awakening for me to read mm-hmm. the way and listen to her on the on this American Life too. The way she breaks it down and it's like it's not even private versus public. Mm-hmm. It's parents in Brooklyn all trying to get their kids into the specific public mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. that's zoned whatever to get out of the public school that's down the block from them. Yep, I just went through this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and she talks about this. She's like she has a child and yep. she and like her big New York Times magazine art piece about this was of course we all want the best for our child mm-hmm. and that's why obviously we want the best that's for why our child. she's pessimistic about it that it will never change yes. because but of course I want the best for it, my because child because it's a symptom of another issue like this is not the place where you fix systemic racism mm-hmm. this is the byproduct of systemic racism mm-hmm. like this is where the the rubber meets the road with systemic racism this is what you get from systemic racism is a segregated public school system that's intractable this is what you get from pretending that whiteness is is founded in just pr- identity pride. <laughs> it's it's not. It's it's a system of power. It's a it's a human system of organization and power and limiting resources for people. But shouldn't but that's the to me that's the question as a white person. Yeah. Shouldn't I be like whatever this woman who you read said like putting my money where my mouth is or whatever the expression is I'm horrible with those kinds of expressions but like shouldn't I be sending my the problem in New Orleans of course is that it's all charterized and it's not even districted so it's not like there's a school we're not choosing I'm starting but I'm starting to feel clear in this conversation just from what I just (laughs) said that came to me is that no I mean I'm always looking at like how are the masses behaving like I believe in the wisdom of crowds and that um, that's one of my beliefs is that you can't just dismiss what people do. You can talk about it. And like the another thing that we do that doesn't get us anywhere is blame and shame, which is a byproduct of like binary thinking and, mm-hmm. you know, not being involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people are going to continue to do this. Like you were saying, this woman says like this is this thing that people that's not going to change because people want the best for their kids right. that's people want people will being willing to do whatever to protect their children is not going to change right that's not going to change and their behaviors around that are based on their response to the inputs they're getting like that's the animal part of us that can't change people have to secure themselves before they can do anything else you cannot have extracurriculars if you're fearing for your life, right? Mm-hmm. To, to put it in extreme terms. And people like defending their children, that's just, that's so primal, it can't change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it reflects the other things that we've done that we do have other control over and, and like more flexibility in. Not that it's really easy to change like the things at the top, but just this. Right. Well, that's but then when you say that my next thinking of my the next step I always go to always with all these issues is, well, the government needs to force people to do what's right in some way. I mean, like the government government needs to put schools need 
more equal funding. Yeah. They need more equal tax-based funding than they get uh, in in New York City. I don't know all the details. I don't want to go super deep into this, but this is the richest country on earth. We do have the the the, yeah. the resources to fund a decent education for every citizen. For sure. P- period. I mean, I was thinking about it today with all the teacher strikes. It's like, shouldn't there be a law that teacher that public school teachers, whatever the like, mark for middle class or comfortable middle class or whatever, shouldn't teachers be required to make that salary? And shouldn't schools yeah. have a bare minimum? You know, I mean, how is this not? Yeah, like those required are the by shoulds. our government. Yeah, those are the shoulds. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. We should structure ourselves in ways that support each other. We should share our resources in a way where people don't have to worry that they don't have enough food for their children. So what did you guys, I would like to hear, I know we've been talking for a while. So you asked me about what we're doing with our son. Yeah. And I just don't know because I went through the stressful pre-K application process through the Department of Education. They make it as stress-free as possible when you're dealing with a public as large as the public in New York looking for a school for their kids. You know, I do truly believe that that system is doing the best it can as far as this lot, the way this lottery system works. There is the districting, mm-hmm. but each school um, has a little bit of their own process. Some schools do zone, some schools don't. The, f- the number one school on our list just goes by district. Like you have the highest chance of getting in if you're in the district. You actually have the highest chance of getting in if you're in the district with a sibling who goes to school and you're on financial assistance, bec- some sort of hmm. s- some sort of um, financial subsidies, because uh, they reserve sixty percent of their spots for kids that are that are in need, and forty percent for kids that don't qualify for for aid. Mm-hmm. And then there's the preference for siblings within the district. So we only we were a family that did not need aid that did not have a kid already at the school who had, right. who had been to the school but we but we do live in the district and my own research pointed me to it to be the first school on our list because I'm looking for a progressive model if I were to choose a private school it would be Montessori or Waldorf which is I, I've looked at both of those in Brooklyn right there's like 10 Montessori's in Brooklyn yeah. there's one Brooklyn Waldorf school which I absolutely adore it's in a really incredibly gorgeous building plug for Brooklyn Waldorf just so beautiful <laughs> and maddening that like a, a school experience like that in a beautiful space with, you know, not crowded classrooms, just the experience of being in that environment, regardless of what the teaching is like, has, you know, has an effect on your child, Right? has an effect on you. And it's just not readily available. Then there's like the, the prohibitive cost of tuition of a private school education. Most people in New York can't afford it. A friend of mine pointed out that all of these, you know, gentrifying Fort Greeners <laughs> mm-hmm. that live on these beautiful streets that I can no longer afford, even though my first apartment was there, mm-hmm. are sending their kids to public school because everybody's faking the funk that they're like a wealthy New Yorker. <laughs> Nobody's a, very few. There people are, are wealthy I think New I would love to see how many people are getting help from from parent from yeah 
from family. There are I've, so many people trying to gentrify these schools and make these schools better right. because they can't afford private school. Right. Uh, and and it's caught up in you know segregation politics right. and all of that. But um, most of us are trying to make it work with free education because we do believe as Americans we're entitled to it. That's a, that's a part of our Americanness that most of us share is the mm-hmm. belief that we should be entitled to a decent free education. Why should you have to pay when most people don't make a a, a decent enough wage to, for that to possibly be reasonable? Right. So, and other countries seem to manage to figure this out. So yeah. all of that in my head, trying to figure out what to do with my precious angel's education because he is my beautiful, precious gift, <laughs> which is the daycare he attended <laughs> along with your child. Yes. Just a reminder. I mean, like that little rinky dink daycare really took care of us and yes. shout left out to precious gift. shout out to precious gifts, which left me with this metaphor that and to a reminder that my child is my precious gift. Mm. I, I, I regularly use that expression. He is my precious gift and I want to do right by him. I feel a huge sense of responsibility to make sure my precious gift gets everything he deserves. Cause it's my fault. He's here <laughs> <laughs> and he lives in a world that does not have his back in lots of ways, you know, and I know I believe that your beliefs inform your experience. So I do try to stay conscious of assumptions and everything that I've been preaching here around assumptions mm-hmm. that I have to believe in my own power and my son's power for him to have it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm his first example and role model of that stuff. And he's going to get a lot of his beliefs from me. Mm-hmm. So, and I believe that, that like, you know, just being in the practice of this is giving him a better chance. And I just also believe that I need to surround him with advocates and and limit the amount of people who are going to be blocks to his growth people who are going to put him in a box that he doesn't belong in yeah and I just know too many stories in my own story of being like an elementary public school kid from New York City from Brooklyn New York and how rigid the experience is Mm. and how easy it is to get lost not to mention you know what you hear nowadays all the time around the you know the school to prison pipeline (laughs) and how teachers you know reinforce these toxic ideas of race and patriarchy to, Mm -hmm. to our kids despite their best intentions they do it the fact that Black yeah, black males in the school system get penalized more often. Right. Just period. Just get less benefit of the doubt and mm-hmm. more punishment than anyone else. Just because that's just that's the reality we live in. And I, my son is a black child. He's a black male child that's about to enter into institutions. He's he's gonna cross the barrier away from me into these institutions, and it's incredibly fraught for me to yeah. make the best choice. I'm certainly not going to sacrifice my son to the cause of bettering the schools (laughs) i'm just not yeah i i believe he has a better chance at bettering the schools if he grows up believing in his own power rather than fighting the system the whole way i know that there's value in the fight and that that and that having me as his advocate is a huge piece of the puzzle but i also know you know that we're just one story in the world and my own story is of being an incredibly late bloomer to self-empowerment 
Mm. incredibly late. I know that I'm a woman and that's a part of it. And I identify as a black American woman. And I do believe that those identities are a part of it, just in terms of everything I've just been talking about. But there's also so much personal experience and personal history that's at play there. And because of whatever circumstances, I didn't have the advocate that I know I can be for my child. Mm. And I want to see what happens when somebody has your back in that way to, 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 you know, to part the, the waters for you in a way that just didn't happen for me. I do want to see how far my, my ch- child can go when he has some advantages that I didn't. And that's a th- common thing, I think. It's so interesting because I'm like, our situation's almost reverse yeah. in a way. I I don't think about worrying about. I don't worry. I don't think about those worries. Yeah. With my like privileged white upbringing. Yeah. I don't think about that. That's I, what I'm saying. Like I want my son to not think about. Yeah. You know his value in a given context. I want it to just be part of the. Yeah. Like the ether I, I don't want it to be part of the calculation I want him to start in front of that valuing of himself I want that valuing to ta- be, be taken for granted that he doesn't have to prove it or establish it um, or confirm it for himself that it's just there that changes the way you enter a room and the space you take up when you when you stand in that room yeah for sure yeah you're you should just do monologue <laughs> podcast episode talking about your child because that was amazing <laughs> thanks okay i'll think about it yeah because we could do a whole nother show about what i'm what i'm Actually, it's probably a to-be-continued. Yeah. What will it be like when the three of us are planning ourselves in New Orleans, which is a totally foreign city to us, in the middle of a over 92, probably, percent black neighborhood? Mm-hmm. That's, that'll be really interesting. We will, we will have to do a follow-up. We have to do a follow-up. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it'll be... Because I It's going to be totally... It's... It's... I don't know how long we'll live in this house that we bought there, mm-hmm. but for sure, for the time we're there, that's going to be such a different experience for Joni than what I had growing up. Yeah. And Matt and I yeah. both grew up in the suburbs, upper middle class, so similar upbringings, both of us. And she's going to be in the middle of a city. She's going to be... Definitely on our block, the only white kid. Go mm-hmm. a few blocks down. There are other mm-hmm. white kids, but on our block wow. from the people we met, only white kid. So I am, some ways I feel like we're putting her through an experiment <laughs> or something. Well, maybe you can talk to my husband, my white Jewish husband from yeah. Atlanta, yeah. Um, who grew up with a little bit of what you're talking about. Joni is going to have in her young mm-hmm. childhood. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for this. This was great. This is the kind of conversation I'm hoping to have, and I hope someone is interested in listening to. Me too. If not, I just <laughs> fulfill my dream of being on a podcast. Yeah. Even if this doesn't make the cut, I enjoyed it. So. No, this is definitely making the cut. <laughs> this is coming out. Okay. okay. So thank you.
thank you. I, there's so many more things I want to talk about, but I do also believe wholeheartedly in brevity. Yes. Which this That's was what editing is but... for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Grim. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Onward. Awesome. Yes. Bye.